0: You're listening to episode 97 with Dr. Manny Teodoro, professor at Texas A&M University. This episode is brought to you by Rogue Water Lab.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Tobin Redwine, instructional assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural Leadership, Education and Communications at Texas A&M University. This is the podcast that's demonstrating the power of storytelling in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley.
2: We are proud to announce our new nonprofit venture, Rogue Water Lab.
0: A tribe, an experience, a calling, a hub where you can
2: learn, connect, and grow. The Lab is cultivating the next generation of innovators in water communication and education. Why? Because progress is a human story. And those who tell the stories rule the world. So the question now belongs to you. Are you ready to join the revolution? Well you guys, we got to have a total fangirl moment at the UMC conference which I feel like is maybe the only conference that we will get to go to this year, yeah, but the last one, <laughs> the last one. Uh, but we got to have a really great fangirl moment with an interview Dr. Manny Teodoro at the the hotel bar where UMC was going down and I was really excited because we've been fans for a minute.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should get on there. He's always posting incredibly interesting things just that make you think, that make you smarter, um, that make you want to have a conversation. And he's he's incredibly bold about that. And one of the things that I really appreciate about appreciate about him is that this is not new. He's been preaching the same message. I mean, since I think he said 2005, and he's still at this level you know, I mean, he's human, so I know that there have to be peaks and valleys and level of motivation, but he just always seems like super fired up and super pumped up. So it was really good to get to talk to him about what it takes to have the stamina to continue that journey, <laughs> <laughs> especially words of advice for uh, any young professionals out there who may be struggling with the frustration that sometimes our our industry can create and just a pace. But yeah. um Going to talk to him about that.
0: Um, we also got to talk about the importance of being bold. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's got this blog that he's been writing for quite a while now. And I love even that his Twitter account says that he's an angry but optimistic Gen <laughs> Xer. And um, that kind of, I feel like, sums him up perfectly, uh, especially in his blogs and his boldness um, that he's he's writing
1: about.
2: Yeah, if you go to MannyTeodora.com. Manny that's uh, his blog website. And his blogs are great because, I mean, Manny is this incredibly intelligent human being who is able to really talk about things in a very human and readable, enjoyable way. He did a great one talking about prevent defense and compared the like, football to some of the management um, styles that he sees in our in our industry sometimes. And so I really recommend checking out his blogs as well. But um, of course, Manny is sort of the voice of affordability and rate issues right now. And so we definitely talked about that and how he sees that issue evolving and kind of what's coming up next.
0: Yeah. And if he could, we asked him, you know, if, if you could be master of the universe and wave a magic wand, you know, what does that future look like regarding those affordability
2: and rates issues? Yeah. So and that this was an interesting a- answer. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a good one. Get your notepads out. And without further ado, let's get to the show. We are live from UMC 2020 in Anaheim, and we snagged the one and only Manny Teodoro. So, Teodora. Manny, thanks for taking some time out to chat with us.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
2: Yeah. Let me just get this in real quick. Okay. Giggum Aggies. Oh, God. Here we go.
1: <laughs> just, <I laughs> we gotta,
2: gotta
0: throw that out there. Every time. All right. <laughs> go for it. Okay. So, we're going to s- jump right in and start with our um, first question we ask every guest, and that is... Um, did you choose water or did water choose you?
1: I think water chose me. Okay, uh, okay. I mean yeah, you know, I I don't think a lot of people grow up thinking someday I wanna analyze water rates <laughs> and <laughs> how yeah. to manage regulatory compliance in utilities. Now, you know, it, I came into this business by accident, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of folks. When I was in graduate school, I was studying, my first time I was in graduate school, uh, I was studying public management and was interested mostly in finance and banking oh. regulation, but it turns out my graduate advisor was an engineer and an economist, Every example that he used in uh, classes was uh, utility. Interesting. And so I ended up learning a lot about utilities. When I went out to hit the job market and I was looking for a job, I caught on with, an, uh, with a consulting firm okay. that worked on utility finance. And so they snapped me up because this was stuff that I knew.
0: Sure. Nice. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad that they did I'm that. I'm glad that water chose Thank you, you. Professor.
1: Yes. Well
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for those examples you used. Uh, so it was it was really cool getting to have a conversation with you last night, and I didn't realize, you know, you've you've been in the water nerd fam for a long time, but I didn't realize that you've been preaching this from the mountaintops since 2005. Uh, and so I had kind of a two layered question here. Number one, I want to hear about that journey and from where you were then to where you are now and kind of the evolution of that. But we hear a lot of times that a lot of times young professionals can get just frustrated because of all of the red tape it mm-hmm. feels like and the bureaucracy that just seems to stymie change and movement and some words of advice from someone who has been preaching since 2005. Like, <laughs> tell us about your journey first.
1: All right, well, I, I you're asking me about affordability, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I've been thinking about affordability since at least 2005 or earlier. (laughs) Uh, I first started thinking about affordability. I I wish I could say it was purely a high-minded humanitarian impulse. Sure. It is that, but it is also just sort of intellectual disgust with... The way that people had been thinking about conceiving of and mostly measuring and making policy about water affordability, mm-hmm. uh, I first encountered it when I was a, a consultant uh, in you know the firm that I mentioned earlier I first encountered people measuring affordability as an average bill divided by the community's median household income, even at the time, I thought this is a crazy way to measure affordability sure. yeah. and uh, you know I started thinking about that and when I went back to graduate school to earn, earn my PhD I started writing about it I started speaking about it this was you know again the first the first time I gave a, a conference talk about this issue was 2005 mm-hmm. uh, and I got polite tennis style <laughs> applause you uh, call it
2: applause, to, uh, attention, applause. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's
1: and it, you know, polite, you polite applause, but not necessarily raucous, enthusiastic. Sure. Uh, reception. That's right. Uh, but I kept at it, right, because because the issue is important, and because affordability is important enough that we measure it correctly if it's something that we want to address. You know, uh, then as now. Uh, it's just a fundamentally bad metric. Let me let me just rattle on about that real quickly Please, for any sure, case yeah. anyone doesn't know. Let's go into it's it. a terrible horrible no good very bad metric.
2: Oh, like that.
1: So, here's the there, there are four fundamental problems with median household income or average bill is divided by median household income as a way to think about affordability. Number one, it base, it's based on an average bill. Now, in almost every community around the United States, the average customer uses way more than basic needs. Mm-hmm. I don't think most of the time when people talk about affordability, they're really worried about the affordability of lawn watering or car washing or filling a swimming pool. They care they care about cooking and drinking mm-hmm. and sanitation, yeah. cleaning your home, caring for your family. That's what we think about. So we should be focused on basic use, not average use. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I love that. Second, You know, in all but the most desperately poor communities, the median household doesn't have an affordability problem. So why are we looking at a median household? We should be looking at a low-income household. Yeah. Yeah. The third is that uh, that metric doesn't take into account in any way the other costs of living. Now, water is essential, literally, (laughs) uh, but it isn't the only thing that people have to pay for. You can think about things like taxes and housing and health care especially, the housing and healthcare uh, are, are very expensive in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, food, home, energy—those things are costly. That metric is insensitive to those costs. So, you know, a, a thirty-thousand-dollar income means something very different in San Francisco yeah. from what it means in, say, Frisco, Texas. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These these are very different kinds of markets. Uh, and then finally, this magic golden number of 2% of median household income, or 2.5% on the sewer side, this 4% number that's made up of nothing, mm-hmm. and it becomes this arbitrary cutoff line where people look at it and say, oh, well, we calculated average bill divided by median household income, it came out at 3.8%, so we're fine. Yeah. We have no affordability problem, please go away. Yeah. It's just it's a preposterous and arbitrary way to measure things. So I, I, I saw that problem, uh, I've been screaming about it for (laughs) 15 years now and uh happily over the last few years people have started to listen yeah
2: Yeah. Yeah. they have been
1: so advice on how to (laughs) work through that
0: this is a little therapy for you yeah Yeah, that's right
1: i i i wish i had something profound and useful to say here uh i think sometimes it's just—it's just got to be stubbornness, right? Yeah, if you've—if sure. you've got a—if you've got an idea, you just got to push through with it. This—this mm-hmm. this is the water sector is wonderful in in a lot of ways, uh, but it is an extraordinarily conservative industry, yeah, yeah. right? It's, it's a group of people who are very change averse. Mm-hmm. And look, that's not inherently a bad thing, right? We don't necessarily sure. want riverboat gamblers running our critical infrastructure. <laughs> we we like the idea that people are careful about design. We want them to, to safeguard public health very carefully. We, we entrust them with our lives. Um, at the same time, there is sometimes a sense in which utility managers feel like well, gosh, if the ancient Romans didn't do it, we don't need to do it either. <laughs> right. uh, they knew everything yeah. there was to know about water engineering, right? Yep. So it it's tough. And, and you know, the best I can say is over the years, through organizations like AWWA, I've developed a network of contacts who don't just help me produce scholarship, and policy analysis, sure. uh, and help do work, but also provide that sort of, for lack of a better term, sort of uh, food for the soul. Yes, nice, foreign to you. Yeah, yeah, other folks who yeah. are who are fellow travelers. Yeah. Um, you know, we- Found, we, found your
2: tribe. We, found your tribe, yeah. yeah that's that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. From Manny's mouth to your ears, Wave he's- Find your <laughs> tribe. Just be stubborn. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so I'm going to uh, talk to you. You, you mentioned those um, four points earlier, and um, I have read quite a few of your blogs, um, and those are those four points you can read about. A lot of those in depth, nannieteadoro.com, I think. There you go, plug it. Yeah, I'm going to plug it because it's, <laughs> it's great. Um, one thing I really like about it is just the readability. It. Anyone can read it. It's not over my head. You're a very smart human being. And so I first, when I pulled up that <laughs> website, um, when I first found out about you, I thought, golly, am I ever going to even understand what he's talking about? Yeah. I can. There's lots of images that I relate to. Leslie Nope, Amy Polar, Great man. <laughs> I love the a- Thank a- API. You. Not like, okay, it's a whole thing. Thank you. Um, so what I want to get to is... You're bold. You have no fear, I feel like. (laughs) And bold is gold. It's one of our core values. It is one of our core values. So I would like for you to talk about the importance of being bold
2: and having your voice. In this industry, especially, to your point of being extremely change adverse and how powerful it is to be that voice. Because even the people that are championing you on Twitter and the water nerds that are doing it are also folks who are seeing the boldness in you. And um, I just, I dig it. I love it. You have those conversations that take courage, like Kathy Bailey talked about earlier this morning. So what's, the, what's uh, Teodoro's words of wisdom about
1: boldness? So, so <laughs> glad you mentioned Kathy Bailey. Again, there's a lot going on here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kathy, I would describe as one of those people, one of those fellow travelers who I met some years ago and, and felt some simpatico. Yeah, Uh, trying to change some things in this business for the better. So uh, let me start. First of all, thank you for the comments on the blog. Uh, The the blog's a lot of fun, and it's it's a lot more fun to write that blog and interact with people. Um, Academics, you know, academic research is very stilted in its style, and it has to be. It's the nature of what we do, but I don't blame people for having a hard time working their way through a scientific journal article. They're boring, right? So the blog is a great way to reach people, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. I, it's been fun to interact with people through that medium. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens in in this risk-averse, uh, very conservative industry is that, that seeps through into the interpersonal, sort of cultural norms of interaction. Um, I, there's something like, I like to refer to the Ronald Reagan rule back back in the 1970s when Ronald Reagan was first running for president mm-hmm. He said uh, to other Republicans. He says we should have a rule that a Republican shall never speak ill of another Republican sure. mm. And I think there's a form of the Ronald Reagan rule that sort of pervades the water sector Sometimes that we're never supposed to speak ill of another person or organization in the water sector, mm-hmm, yeah. which look, as a matter of being nice to other people, that's a good thing. As a maximum, we shouldn't go around trying to kick other people. Yeah. Um, but look, one of the things I think is fascinating is we hear a lot of folks in this water sector talk about best practices. Well, if something is a best practice, by implication, something else must be a worse practice. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so we end up having uh, a little bit of a Lake Wobegon effect in the water sector sometimes where all the children are above average. And and it makes it very difficult to identify what's really going well and what really isn't. The boldness partly is my innate personality. I I am what my grandmother used to call a shit disturber. (laughs) I don't know I how it. how is how is our podcast rated? Oh, are we, are we family friendly? Okay,
0: we're in the wastewater. You're in friendly. Oh, is my, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Well, well, friendly.
1: It's <laughs> my grandma, not me. Uh, <laughs> so, part of it's just personality, but partly that's what I like to think. At our best, that's what scholars bring to any profession, to any industry. Uh, sometimes when I'm about, and I'm when I'm in a professional setting, and I'm about to utter a particularly uncomfortable or inconvenient truth, mm. I will utter said inconvenient truth, and then say, and I have tenure, <laughs> <laughs> right? So in some sense, there's, there's what, what academics bring to the table and bring to an organization like AWWA, or like WEF, organizations I deeply respect, and I've been committed to these organizations for a long, long time. Yeah. About to get my 20-year pin, I think. <laughs> Oh, wow. uh, yeah, um, but part of what I what I bring is a, a willingness to say the hard things yeah. and and to to raise the tough questions. And you know, I'm one of the very few people who comes to this meeting and I'm not selling anything. Yeah. I'm not buying anything. Yeah. Uh, the interest for me is to. Improve, uh, improve the way we do things, right? And, and ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm, the world's tried really hard to beat the idealism out of me, but I've <laughs> still got it. I really still think that on my best days, I try to make the world a better place.
2: Yeah. Good. I love it. Well, we appreciate your... Disruptor behavior. <laughs> yes, we dig it. Grenade launch. Bringing it back to uh, affordability and rates and this journey that you've been on for what you said about 15 years, First, first bit of this is I know it went from like crickets to attention in terms of do you feel like we're at a tipping point how have you kind of seen this issue evolve over the past 15 years and then what is the goal for you or what does success look like if you got to be master of the universe and wave a magic wand what would it be that you cast upon the water world that, that is the goal when it comes to affordability and rates
1: okay so there were two questions there. Sorry, right?
2: the first one was how you've kind of seen this issue evolve yeah. since you began, and then what's your magic wand moment?
1: So it's, it's evolved mostly in the degree of attention that people are paying to it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's, there's no great mystery why the price of water and sewer service has gone up. Yeah. It's gone up far greater than the general rate of inflation. We're actually living in a period of very low general inflation. And so when water and sewer prices are going up 5 to 10% a year, that's really extraordinary uh, relative to the rest of the economy. So I think that's just what's driving the interest. For a long time, people could afford to, no pun intended, they could afford to ignore their water and sewer service because it was so cheap relative to everything else that they were paying, particularly energy. If you look at the energy sector, those prices have been flat Mm -hmm. for the last 10, 15 years. Water and sewer have not been flat. They've been going up. Uh, There's been then a couple of high-profile cases Uh, Detroit probably most notably where public protests over shutoffs and delinquent you know shutoffs for delinquency and non-payment started to garner national even international attention Mm -hmm. so I think that's shined a spotlight on this issue in a way that we haven't seen uh, certainly in my my professional lifetime Uh, so I I think that's what's changed Uh, it's people care more about this issue now, so they are beginning to take questions of measurement and policy um, more seriously. So magic wand, what do I do? (laughs) I think the first thing to improve affordability is just to improve our water utilities improve our sewer utilities Uh, and there's there's a lot of things that we could do probably the single most important thing the single most important thing we could do to improve affordability the single thing most important thing we could do to improve water quality to improve our workforce virtually every dimension of our water sector would be better if we had fewer community water systems Mm. we have about (laughs) 50,000 water systems in the United States we got about 3,200 electrical utilities about 1700 right. gas utilities everything in the water sector is worse because we got 50,000 systems mm.
0: couldn't mm-hmm. agree more so
1: i'd like to see 5000 systems and that's 5000 5, wow. an order Bold. of magnitude yes wow. and i'd see I'd, i think 5000 systems and i'm agnostic as to how we get there sure. with yeah. respect to organizational structure but all the evidence shows that in addition to lower average costs, we also get higher quality everything else. Uh, so that's, that's when I think that ties back to affordability in a couple of ways. Remember that, look, water systems are expensive. Yeah. Right? So we're going to pay for them. And we're going to pay for them with our taxes, or we're going to pay for them with our rates, or we're going to pay with our health. And paying for that, paying for them with our health should be unacceptable to us. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's no good if our rates are cheap, but our water is poor, and our uh, our, our environment is polluted because our sewer systems are failing. Yeah. So, uh, that's that's probably the single most important thing in terms of outcomes. We maybe in a lot of cases need to look at fundamentally changing our revenue models. We need to think maybe about a mix of, of, of uh, rate and uh, tax funding, or other sources of funding, as may make sense. Uh, it is not, I mean, it is a moral failing and a practical failing that we have as many shutoffs as we do.
2: Yeah. You
1: know, it's, a, a shutoff is a failure. Yeah, and it's a failure for everybody. And I'm not blaming utilities or their managers here necessarily. Look, I tell people all the time, especially when I'm working with the advocacy community who just like have very dis or have a lot of distrust for utility management. I said, look, ut- utility managers don't get into this business because they want to shut people off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody gets in this business because they want to twirl their mustache and tie grandma <laughs> to the railroad tracks and, <laughs> and 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 shut people off from their water. No, we want to serve people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The water sector, look, I, that was a little psychological slip for me there. I identify, I said we. We are. You know, I work for a university, but I consider myself part of this your, water community. Uh, yeah, your part. And, and I I don't think anybody gets in this business because they want to shut people off and take no. their money. We get in this business because we want to serve our communities, make them healthy and prosperous. Uh, so shutoffs are a barrier and they're a failure. We have to find ways to end them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Going back again to Kathy Bailey's presentation that she gave this morning, which, by the way, the entire thing rhymed. Uh, she yes, didn't wrap amazing. it, but the whole thing rhymed. And she talked about this how. Big show off. The She's got too much time on her hands. <laughs> she talked about, I think it's just naturally it innate just in her. Um, she she did talked about time. how the mayor gave them. Was it the mayor? or a council member, the mayor, gave them a call to action to get rid of shutoffs altogether because of the way that it was disproportionately impacting the low-income minority communities in Cincinnati, which typically a lot of our biggest problems in our industry do. Mm -hmm. And I know that last night you and I were also talking about the impact of this on tribal communities, and the U.S. Water Alliance and Dig Deep just put out their report recently on the closing the access gap in relation to Communities that lack access to clean water and sanitation. Two million people in this country lack access to that. And a huge portion of that community comes from tribal lands. So in your own experience and research, what have you seen in those cases?
1: Right. I can't speak directly to the question of access. Uh, but I, I do have, I, I think, pretty interesting bit of research to share on tribal water systems, and sewer systems. A few years ago, I was working on a study of Safe Drinking Water Act compliance using national data sets. I've been working on this stuff for a long time, and I, and I found something in, found a, little, a weird correlation in the data I didn't understand, uh, and that was that the tribal systems had, uh, had rates of violation and frequencies of Safe Drinking Water Act violation that were in some cases, five and ten times the average. Like, way, like again, order of magnitude off the chart. And I yeah. thought, this this got to be something wrong. And so I, I, I had a new graduate student coming in. It was a fall semester. And I asked her to, I said, look, we've we got a data problem over here or something. Would you please look into it? I don't know anything about tribal governance. I don't know anything about tribal management, tribal systems. I don't know stuff at all. Would you please go figure out what's going on with this? <laughs> so she dutifully went along and, and investigated. And after a couple, three weeks, she came back to me and she said, "Yeah, there's something wrong, but there's nothing wrong with our data. There's something wrong with the systems. Yeah. There's something wrong with the water and sewer systems out there." And so we started. That started us down a long investigation uh, into uh, environmental management on uh, tribal lands. We ended up spending a lot of time looking at Clean Water Act, some at Safe Drink Water Act, a lot of Clean Water Act, uh, wastewater treatment. Uh, issues, and I ended up learning a whole lot about tribal systems. One of the things that really surprised me: the tribes were not covered under the original Clean Water and Safe Drinking Water Acts. Mm. The best explanation we seem to be able to come up with is that Congress forgot mm. that wow. that there are tribes. True. Yeah. yeah. So they weren't yeah. actually covered until the late 1980s. Yeah. At the same time that federal infrastructure funding had gone away, so tribes are decade or two behind the curve uh, in terms of both physical capacity and organizational capacity. Uh, and so they, they've struggled to comply with these laws. New paper, that, so we published a paper on that a few years ago. Um, my graduate student name is Mellie Hader, and she and I have just published or we have just had accepted our follow-up study, which is where we look at Tribal primacy: situations where tribes have taken responsibility for their own, uh, their own implementation of the Clean Water Act, okay. and we see that they end up being much more, uh, much more aggressive about enforcement than yeah. ha- occurs when EPA administers. Yeah, sure, so yeah. there's a lesson there for ho- both. I think a hopeful lesson there for capacity building. Yeah. When when tribes have capacity. Uh, to To manage themselves and, and administer their own uh, environmental programs, they give out, get better results.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get into um, the lightning round, uh, <laughs> I want to I wanted to touch on a blog that you wrote since we are at the Utilities Management Conference. A blog that you wrote. Um, Maybe not your last one, but your second to last was was all about utility management, and you did a whole sports metaphor around the
1: yeah. I apologize for that. No,
2: No, it it was was great. great. (laughs) Um, Again, like understood. Yeah, I got it. (laughs) So, talk to us a little bit about what you meant by that metaphor of prevent defense.
1: Right. Well, I thought about this because uh, it was the NFL playoffs going on at the time, so I was watching the championship games and the Super Bowl and Mm -hmm. all of that. The Prevent defense, for uh, people who aren't football fans, uh, the Prevent defense is an extremely, extremely conservative way to play football. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's intentionally so. You use a Prevent defense when you're way ahead. And your goal with Prevent defense is not to win so much as to preserve or to avoid losing, Yeah. yeah. so your, your goal is to avoid losing. You've got a big lead, it's late in the game, you're trying to run out the clock mm-hmm. and get the other team off the field, uh, or let them, maybe even let them score, but make them take a lot of time doing it. So you're, yeah. you're just trying not to fail. Well, <laughs> it occurred to me that that's what happens a lot in the water sector. Oh
0: my gosh, mm-hmm. when I read that, I, yeah, bam, yeah. Well, it gets
1: back to the where we started this conversation, and the inherent conservatism, Yes. right? Because so, the, because so many of the things that we do in the water sector are set up around avoiding failure, it seems like metaphorically, managers end up playing prevent defense. And I'll tell you what, what I mean. Almost everything we do in the water sector is, uh, is set up around regulatory compliance. I remember I took an a, a operator uh, training course one time. I was interested in how people get into the water sector, so I took you know, basic introductory water operator training through Texas A&M University Extension. It was a lot of fun, <laughs> uh, really interesting stuff. But it was fascinating to me that every lesson we got was built around regulatory compliance. Yeah. Why do we use this much chlorine? Well, to comply with regulation. Yeah. Why do we enter this enclosed space with protective equipment? Well, to comply with regulation, and there, that ended up being the rationale for almost everything. Mm-hmm. And if you look about, look at the way utilities make their investment decisions, make their operational decisions. It's all around regulatory compliance. Yep. That means that winning means not violating. Yeah. Yep. It's meeting a a standard. Actually, this ties directly to this affordability problem we talked about earlier. Let's set up an arbitrary standard of what affordability means, and if you meet that, oh, great.
0: Good. Checked. Checked.
1: We're good. (laughs) Done. It's a fundamentally negative way to think about performance. Winning means I didn't fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Boy ain't that inspiring.
0: <laughs> and they and the and they talk about the millennials getting participatory trophies. Right? Come on, utility. Yeah, come that's on, right. Guys.
1: So so I mean like yeah. you you don't you can't it's hard to imagine sticking with the sports metaphor. hard to imagine a a halftime speech where the coach is going to come into the locker room and yell everybody, "All right, guys, let's not fail." <laughs> right? That's yeah. it's it's just again, it's a fundamentally negative way to think about performance. It's not motivating. No. But what? But you can hardly blame our utility managers because our entire water sector has been set up with around this paradigm of regulatory compliance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we don't have good ways for people to claim credit as mm-hmm. opposed to avoid blame. Yeah. Credit claiming is a very different kind of game from blame avoidance. Yeah. yeah. And you think about something like uh like fixed infrastructure in a water system if I've got a a water main and I know it's kind of old I know it needs rehab I know it's we haven't done adequate maintenance I'm balancing that risk that it might fail against the pain that I'm going to suffer asking for a rate increase so I'm sort of thinking to myself well maybe I can put it off for a while Mm -hmm. And yeah, right. It'll be somebody else's problem, and when it when it fails, you know, it fails. Yeah, hopefully, I'll be retired. (laughs) And what it got me to thinking was, wouldn't it be? How how would the world be different? How would our water systems be different? How would water management be different if we gave people an opportunity to win? Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, right now it's hard to win. Mm -hmm. We can only avoid losing. So what if we could measure performance on multiple dimensions and let people try to improve their utilities on those dimensions. And that's where I, I came to the idea of a report card. Look, I issue report cards every semester. <laughs> Everybody, we, look, utilities put out uh, drinking water quality reports, again, yep. because they're required yes. by regulation. Yep.
0: Just do the minimum. Yep.
1: That's right. Those things are inscrutable.
0: They're, oh, yeah. Oh my God.
1: I mean, Ten unless you're a chemical engineer, yeah. what what do you, those don't mean a whole lot yeah. to you. Right? Snoozeville. That's right. So, but everybody who's been to I'm high not school mine. Mine, I mean, our no, yours are, are pretty sexy. Pretty I'm sure. Bad yeah, oh, they're pretty that's, amazing. That's, yeah. that's right. Um,
0: but you
1: know, sorry. <laughs> I
0: Had to give myself credit for a second. Yeah, No, but they the music are, that
1: plays when you open them really I adds a lot. Don't
2: you say that, but <laughs> the music opens up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Angels saying with our yeah. CCRs. Okay, continue. But everybody's been.
1: <laughs> anyone who's been to high school knows what a grade point average is and knows exactly. what a report card is. Yes. Well, what if we issued report cards to utilities? Nobody you
0: know? wants to be on Scopro. No, nobody wants to be on Scopro. <laughs> I so know Manny was never on Scopro. I is this an Aggie thing? No, sc- uh, scholastic probation.
1: Oh. oh. I never yeah, heard yeah, I've never Scopro. heard this term okay. before.
2: Oh my God. Sorry. Some <laughs> <laughs> Everyone fail. else is like shaking their heads. We have no <laughs> idea what she's talking about. Hey, I admit, I failed a class or two in college. Oh. So, yeah, uh, I think it would be. Now, is that something when you, would each utility set theirs? Because then I just see it becoming into a total cluster and trying to standardize what everybody's.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, everyone's... grade inflation, you can imagine, right? No, yeah. no. bell curve. You would, need to have, <laughs> uh, you would need to have some kind of independent Greater, yeah. yeah right gotcha. because uh shockingly when you allow students to assign their own grades to themselves <laughs> yeah that's right uh you know, you're gonna tend to get a lot of a grades and not a lot of d grades so yeah we would need some independent means of doing so you know by coincidence the same week that i posted that blog post the New Jersey Senate introduced a bill that would create a report card for New Jersey water systems. Yeah. It's Senate bill 647 in the New Jersey Senate. It's still working its way through the legislative process. Uh, but they, I'm pleased to say they, they introduced that idea following my testimony at a Jer- New Jersey uh, legislative hearing Whoa, where wow. I suggested this idea um, and they're going forward with it. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic if, if uh, New Jersey were to go down this path, I think there's reason to be excited about about the potential. My concern would be, as always, grade inflation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 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 state w- would charge, or the state legislature is charging the uh, state department ed, uh, of in the, I don't remember what it's called, the Department of Environmental Protection. I think. <laughs> with creating the the the, the grade scorecard. the scorecard, yeah. the yeah. you know the the, the grading mechanisms. And my concern is that it, they will be for political reasons. They will be reluctant to give bad grades. Back to the Ronald Reagan yeah. rule. Gotcha. Right?
0: I mean, uh, could we do like the way the finance side does and go through like the S and P global ratings type of scores? Right. Kind of third yeah. Party like that?
1: I think that's the most promising avenue. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, no such animal exists. Um, so but someone could. Do you need to
0: could, one? And I'll help you run it. Come on, well, Annie. You got you, this.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Annie.
1: I'm on it. I'm working on it.
2: Okay. Okay. Oh, breaking news. We'll do your comms for you when you you want to roll that out. We'll make sure everyone knows about that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think you've kind of talked about it, but maybe more explicitly. In that blog, you also talked about creating an achievement culture versus just a let's not fail. Is that kind of the idea that you already spoke about, or is there something specific to how you can build an achievement culture?
1: Yeah. Yes, yes, there is something more to it. Uh, it's not so much specific as it is very much general. Oh, okay. uh, look, one of the things we know uh, about entrepreneurs, now I'm talking about, about uh, commercial entrepreneurs now. We know that entrepreneurs are wired differently from the rest of the population.
0: Yeah, they are. Right?
1: They are risk tolerant. And they tend to be what what psychologists, personality psychologists, call achievement-motivated.
2: Oh, I thought that were crazy. crazy. Well, yeah.
1: they <laughs> manifest themselves in very similar ways at times. Uh, but they're people who are risk-tolerant and uh, who need external validation of their success Mm -hmm. it's like what makes them happy what they get a high from success success defined here as external validation Ah. right that that i have that i have done something that has met a standard of excellence right the kids who wanted to get straight a's in school the 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 athlete who obsessively trains to win a gold medal they're wired differently from the rest of us. Yeah. People who are willing to, to train to be Olympic athletes, they're, they look, they're kind of crazy, yeah. right? Kind of crazy. right? Because that's that's what great success requires. Yep. It requires being uncomfortable, doing things that are risky, doing things that look really unpleasant. Yeah. We have to create a culture. If we want an innovative industry, if we want to transform things. We need to build that achievement culture. We need to give, we need to invite people who are maybe a little bit crazy that way. Now we don't want them gambling our critical infrastructure and putting our public health at risk. But we do want them to be rewarded for doing exciting and interesting and and innovative things. So the idea behind a report card, behind a grade point average for water systems is giving that kind of external validation yeah. so that a leader of an organization can say, hey, you know, when I took this took over this utility, we were a 1.9. Yeah. yeah. Now we're a 3.1. Right,
2: it gives you something to really, a solid goal to get behind and rally the team around. It's like, yeah. let get that GPA up, guys. As gal. opposed to,
1: you know, we used to have nine violations and now we have seven. Yeah. yeah. Hooray. <laughs> Wave yeah. your little flag.
2: Love it. Here's a trophy. <laughs> love it. Uh, I'm behind that. Yeah, I dig it. Yeah, I would. I would love to see the GPA thing go, go viral. <laughs> right.
1: Well, and I and I think the other the other thing the other crucial thing about this idea of, of a GPA or, or grade for a water system, we want to make sure that we don't grade on a curve, right? Either in the in the grade inflation sense or in the relative sense. Yeah. We shouldn't be ranking all the utilities and saying, well. You know, 10% have to get A's, and 30% have to get B's, sure. and 30% have to get C's. No, that yeah. that's silly. It should be at least theoretically possible for everyone to get A's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have a grading scheme set up yet, and yeah. I'm, okay. you know. Get it going. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to work on that.
2: <laughs> well, um, we're going to hop into the lightning <laughs> round because I know that people are about to get out of their sessions, and yeah. this bar is going to fill up. Right. Uh, so we want to we wanna get through that, so I'm going to so let, let Ariane Last three quick that. questions. These okay. you don't know, so we're going to catch <clears throat> you by surprise. Yeah. <laughs> um, Manny,
0: what, um, what book are you reading right now that you could recommend to all of us?
1: A book that I'm reading, like currently reading, not finished? Book?
2: What's your a good book right now uh, that you would recommend? Okay.
1: I just read a book, just finished reading uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Moses' Man of the Mountain. Huh. I, I, Zora Neale Hurston is a writer who's sort of been rediscovered. Okay. You know, she, I, 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 just, I found out about her through my daughter. Uh, who was assigned to Zora Neale Hurston book in high school. I had never heard of her. Uh, she's this wonderful American writer, very very little known, and, and I've, I've read a couple of her books now. Moses' Man of the Mountain is a retelling of uh, the book of Exodus. Okay. And it's... But it's done in like a southeastern United States oh, okay. African American cool. kind of community. Whoa! Cool. But it's this idea of you know flight from Egypt, wandering the desert. Yeah. It's a it's a very interesting take, and and it, it and she's a wonderful writer. I wouldn't say it's necessarily her. Her best book, uh, yeah. Their Eyes Were Watching God, is a, is a better book, mm. but Moses' Man of the Mountain is very interesting okay. one. It's the one I've, I've heard of read that. the most I like most that, the eye, Their recently. Eyes Were
0: Watching God. Yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, nice. second question. Um, what is one thing that you do every day that drives your productivity?
1: That drives my productivity? Yeah. Yes. This is going to sound really counterintuitive, but I'd say it's Twitter. You know, right. it also sucks my productivity. Yeah. yeah. But you balance. know, yeah, it re- it really it it does both. Uh, and sometimes I, I get I get just dist- completely distracted by Twitter. But it also it Twitter also inspires. It's funny I, I, I talk to so many people who are not in the water sector and they yeah. complain like, oh, Twitter's a cesspool. Twitter people we'll are such them. jerks on Twitter. Look, We're I connect with we connected on Twitter. Yes. Right? I connect with a lot of people on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. Scho- other scholars. Uh, scientists who work on water outside of my area, you know, people who actually work well, I with you were actual I was a water.
0: That's right. and
1: you connected <laughs> with me. Yeah. I'm just that's right. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, you know, leaders, uh, advocates, politicians, sure. managers—the yeah. kind of people who I'm not going to, you know, meet. But people all over the world you can yeah. connect with on Twitter, yeah. and it sort of helps craft this community of people who are interested in similar kinds but of did issues. You say you're an
2: everyday Twitter.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah. Easily. Yeah. yeah. What's your
2: handle again, so everyone can follow you? It's
1: M P Teodoro.
2: Yes. Get on there, water nerds, and follow them. We're following him, so you can find uh, you can find them on uh, our feed as well. So, uh, okay. Last question we ask this of everyone. We love the answers we get. So, in our line of work, it was all about creating behavior change and impact and. We would sometimes have people say, well, what does it matter if I make a change? I'm just one person, that won't make a difference. And of course, we wholeheartedly disagreed with that. We believe that change can be contagious and you never know what you're gonna inspire in someone else. So, what is the one call to action that you are most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world?
1: (laughs) Wow, now am I calling others to action or is this my own action?
2: That you're calling others to action.
1: I'm going to circle back to something you, you asked way back at the beginning, which is this combination of stubbornness and, <laughs> and patience. Yes. Uh, there's a great, uh, a great scholar named John Kingdon who wrote a theory of how public policies change. Mm. And he argued that there were people who, people in organizations who occupied something he called the solution stream. Mm -hmm. There are people who have solutions and they're just kind of floating out there in the ether. Then there's a whole stream of problems that exist out in the world and they're just kind of floating out there in the ether. And change happens when problems meet solutions in what Kingdon called a window of opportunity. Those windows of opportunity are unpredictable. You never know when they happen. I wouldn't, complaining and grousing and working (laughs) and trying to improve water affordability for a long time i was floating out there in that solution stream at any time i could have stopped but at some point the window opened and the problem and the solution finally had an opportunity to connect to one another so that's that's the advice if you've got your solution Keep working that solution. Eventually, the window will open, and you'll have an opportunity to connect to it.
2: Ah, Just keep swimming up that solution stream. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know that in conference mode, we're all super busy, so we definitely appreciate this. And finally got the opportunity to catch up in real life. Shout out to Chelsea from Central Arkansas Water who has been live tweeting for us and if you don't follow them, go follow them now as well. Uh, and hope you have a rest of a great conference.
1: Thanks so much. Same to you. Thank you.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Water Nerd newsletter found at theh2duo.com forward slash newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore h2duo. We share all of our new episodes there as well as in the newsletter. So whether we come across your feed or in your inbox, be sure to share episodes with your friends, family, colleagues, fellow water nerds. Help us spread the word. We hope you learned something new today, got a little inspired, or did something that brought you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says, Those who tell the stories rule the world.